Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to say but I need you to hear me out. The Tortoise Shack relies on you to pay it forward and keep the podcast free for everyone. So if you can spare the few quid, it's less than the price of a pint nowadays and it helps keep the mics on, lights on, pay the bills and keeps the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. There are thousands of you listening, we just need a few of you to join us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. Podcasting has become very corporatized. Most podcasts in Ireland are fitting into only two camps, and we're kind of an outlier. We've always been activists first and foremost, and we also believe this medium should be respected and not turned into some advertising hoarding for corporate interests. So if you like what we do, if you get something out of it, the easiest way to give something back is to click that link, give us the 30 seconds it takes to join us. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for liking, sharing. But please join us. That's enough rattling of the bucket for now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palcast, a podcast brought to you by Yusuf Al Jamal and my co host, Helena Coben from Washington, D.C., and um, producer. Tony Groves. We're very um, delighted today to have uh, Irish TD Richard uh, Boyd Barrett joining us from uh, Dublin. Uh, today we will talk about Palestine and what's happening in, in Gaza, the genocide in Gaza. Today is November 24, the first day of the uh, humanitarian pose, quote-unquote, taking a place in the coastal enclave uh, for hopefully um, at least four days. Um, we've seen pictures and footage coming out of Gaza, horrible pictures and footage of people um, who were killed uh, a few weeks ago on Rashid Street, the coastal uh, street in Gaza. Their bodies are still on the ground. Um, their bodies started decomposing, uh, unfortunately. Uh, we've seen pictures and footage of huge destruction in Gaza City and Jabalia refugee camp, where entire, uh, you know, streets, buildings, uh, apartment buildings uh, were uh, leveled to the ground by the Israeli army. Uh, we hope that this ceasefire will bring some peace to the people of Gaza uh, after they've seen much destruction over 48 uh, days. We will talk about this with um, Richard today, and uh, hopefully um, we will bring to the light the people of Gaza who have been suffering uh, immensely um, over the past few weeks. Uh, welcome, uh, Richard, and i um, very happy to have you with Helena and, and, and Tony, too. Yusuf, thanks very much, and thanks to Helena and Tony and to the Echo Chamber podcast. It's 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 great to be here with you to have a chat this afternoon. Thank you. I I think uh, today I will let Helena ask the first question. What about that, Helena? Uh, I think the situation on the ground is very dire. As I said, we've seen a huge de destruction on the streets of Gaza, entire buildings. I think Gaza is literally Gaza City and the north are uh, unlivable. Um, so Richard, it's great to have you with us. Um, really appreciate everything you've been doing um, at, at, at the uh, Irish Parliament there. And um, want to tell you that here in our Congress in the United States, 
the support for Israel's assault against Gaza has been so strong. And we just currently now have, I think, around 32 members of Congress who are calling for a ceasefire, a real ceasefire, not just this humanitarian pause. So could you tell us what's happening in, in your parliament there? Yeah, well, there. I mean, for since the Israeli massacre uh, commenced um, after October the 7th in Gaza, it, the issue has been very intensively discussed in the Irish parliament. And there have been many, many protests on the streets in solidarity with the people of Gaza and Palestine. Um, but uh, I suppose it, it the, the 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 discussion and the narrative has changed in the weeks since all of this started. Uh, at the very outset, sadly, in my opinion, the government and much of the even the opposition uh, went along with what I think is a, a false narrative, which uh, suggested that. Israel had a, had a right to militarily attack Gaza in response to October the 7th. And this is something that certainly people before Prophet, my organization, challenged from the very, very beginning, as did many, many protesters. Because, of course, you know, we all deplore any loss of life. But we understood that the events of October the 7th were a tragic inevitability as a result of the policies uh, that Israel has pursued of persecuting the Palestinians relentlessly for decades. Re you know, that the, the, the real context for the events of October the 7th were, for example, the 16-year-long siege that had been imposed on Gaza, itself a, a war crime and a collective punishment of the entire Gaza population that had reduced Gaza to a situation of permanent humanitarian catastrophe. And, of course, this year alone was the deadliest year for Palestinians, uh, with hundreds of Palestinians being killed, Thousands of Palestinians held hostage in the system of, of administrative detention, ongoing ethnic cleansing in East Jerusalem, settler violence on the West Bank, uh, uh, ongoing illegal settlements, and that this was a you know a history that goes back decades to 1948 of ongoing Nakba, ongoing ethnic cleansing, and that this was the real context for the escalation of violence um but of but sadly our own government i think reinforced initially as did many western governments the narrative that somehow israel was an innocent victim uh and so we really much of the debate in the irish parliament has been a debate about about this uh but i think as people have come onto the streets who share, you know, the view I hold, certainly, and the people before profit hold in huge numbers who understand that the real victims in this situation are the Palestinian people and that they have been victims for decades and decades and decades. That has shifted the government's rhetoric, you know. Uh, so, first of all, the government were forced 
to, to say there should be a ceasefire. Uh, it's incredible that it should have taken, you know, a long time for a government to say, at least stop this slaughter, you know, uh, but at least the Irish government were forced to do that. Uh, but uh, there were, from from early days, we were saying that we should go further, that the right response to what was happening was to lift the siege of Gaza, to uh, recognize the apartheid nature of uh, the Israeli regime, to recognize the crimes that were being committed against the Palestinian people, and to impose sanctions on Israel, such as expelling the Israeli ambassador, sanctioning Israel for its human rights violations, for its war crimes and its crimes against humanity. And as the weeks have gone on, and, and as the Israeli massacre in Gaza has, if you like, been seen by the world, the, the situation has begun to shift. And I would say a va- the vast, vast majority of people in Ireland now are demanding of the government that they recognise that the real guilty party in all of this is the apartheid colonial settler state of Israel. The government still don't really want to admit that, but... You know, the debate is moving in that direction, I would I would say. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Richard, for the context you just gave to, to our listeners about what's happening in, in Palestine. In fact, I lost my sister because she was denied a permit um, to have a surgery in the West Bank. And this was before uh, October 7. This was in 2007. And my my mom was punished for 12 years. She was never given a permit to visit her own uh, family in the West Bank um, by Israel. So as you said, it's a long, 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 um, you know, uh, policy of uh, collective punishment against the Palestinian uh, people. Even today, when um, Israel declared the start of the uh, supposed um, humanitarian pose at 7 a.m. local time, two Palestinians were killed, 20 others were injured uh, as they tried to cross north. They only allow people to cross south. They want to get rid of Palestinians in Gaza City and the north. Um, But I want to ask you, Richard, a lot of people know you for the video you know, at the Irish Parliament, giving the Israeli um, ambassador a hard time and asking the Irish government to expel him. When did you first start to know about Palestine? Because we, we talk about a long history here, and I am aware that you visited Palestine in the 80s. Could you please tell people about your experience with Palestine and what you have seen in Palestine in the 80s? Yeah, I mean, that, that is, in fact, how I ended up involved in politics at all. I mean, I was a, a student in 1987. Uh, I, I was working in London with some friends of mine, as many Irish people had to travel uh, to Britain in those days to work to make money because there was big unemployment in Ireland. So I was working in London. On uh, I took a year out from college and was working doing building houses, uh, council houses actually in London and then we decided to go somewhere hot it was literally as innocent as that we wanted to go to a hot country uh we had no idea where we were going and we we got on a, an airplane to Tel Aviv um with a one way ticket just looking for work and we honestly had very little understanding of the political situation but i i ended i i ended up with my, uh, a few of my friends working on a moshav down in the Nakab, 
uh, Israeli run uh, commercial farm, I suppose you'd call it a little bit like a kibbutz, but not exactly the same. But within a day or two, I was working alongside Palestinians who came as day laborers from refugee camps in uh, Al Khalil in in Hebron, um, and they were telling me about how their families were expelled in 1948 uh, during the Nakba and how they had lived in refugee camps for ever since. And these were young people my own age, and they were well-educated, they were good people who just wanted a future, and they explained to me how their whole future had been taken from them, how they had no future, they had no rights. And I could see for myself the racism, the rampant uh, racism and the apartheid system and how they were treated, it was obvious to me within a day or two there was something fundamentally wrong with the Israeli regime and that the Palestinians were the victims of this. And uh, shortly after I arrived, which was in October 1987, the first Palestinian intifada began. And so my Palestinian friends were telling me about their involvement in the Intifada, in the protests. And uh, when I got an opportunity, they told me how I could get into their refugee camp. It was difficult. I had to get past Israeli military cordons uh, and so on. But I went to their refugee camp and I witnessed firsthand the violence of the Israeli military against young Palestinian people who were just protesting for their rights, for a future, uh, demanding that they should be treated as human beings. And I was so shocked at what I saw. Uh, and then I began to understand the terrible uh, plight of the Palestinian people. And when later, I, I was in the country altogether for about uh, nearly a year, uh, and I saw many things. I saw many horrors visited by Israel on the Palestinian people, so when I when I came back to Ireland, I felt I had to become an advocate for the for the cause of Palestine, uh, and I always understood from that moment that Israel was not a normal state, that Israel was a fundamentally apartheid state that was built on a terrible crime against the Palestinian people. So that's that's how it began. So 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 a trip to a trip to Tel Aviv radicalized you, Richard. Yeah, well, I always say I went to Israel, but I came back from Palestine. Uh, so, uh, in a, in a very short time, I, I learned the truth of, uh, Palestine. Well, that's, that's such a great story, Richard. Thank you so much. You know, I grew up in England, although I live here in the United States now, and we were the people like who started settler colonialism in Ireland, and then we took it over to, uh, to Palestine and, and various other places, including here in Turtle Island, now known as the United States of America. But your story is really important. I'd love to know, like, since Ireland is a part of the EU, um, and we've seen Claire Daly speaking up at the EU in, in a really powerful way, do you think the European Union is going to finally come out and call for a ceasefire? And, and why hasn't it called for one yet? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And uh, I mean, Ireland is is somewhat unique, uh, or certainly it's it's in a minority position in terms of its attitude to the plight of the Palestinians because of our colonial history. And uh, because, you know, as soon as you begin to learn about 
the Nakba, about apartheid, uh, about the racism against Palestinians, the, the mass displacement of Palestinians, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Irish people immediately realize the parallels with their own history, uh, with British colonial rule here. We had a, a set of apartheid laws in Ireland called the penal laws, which were exactly like the apartheid system. We had the Irish population was halved by a famine that was induced by colonial rule and the apartheid laws they imposed on us. So the Irish population over about 20 years went from 8 million to 4 million. And so people really un understand this. And so Irish people, uh, and they have a long history of resistance against British colonial rule and apartheid. So there's a different attitude in Ireland. But of course, in the rest of Europe, the European Union is dominated by former imperialist powers, former colonial powers. Uh, Britain is no longer a member, but obviously is still a, a very central force in Europe uh, and part of NATO and the EU uh, NATO militarization project. And then you have countries like Germany and France, uh, Belgium and so on that have that former colonial history. And I think they dominate the European Union and tragically, they have given uh, and continue to give very, very active support to Israel and impunity to Israel uh, for their own selfish, strategic, imperialist kind of reasons. Uh, so they see Israel as a kind of outpost of Western influence in uh, the Middle East. But Richard, I think Richard, the key to empire is that you can't see it. You know, it's, yeah. and that's and that's what they're so successful at is making empire invisible. So this is a form of empire. Can I ask you a personal question? And feel free to tell me to fuck off if you want. Your own background as someone who was um, born in a mother and baby home. Do you feel that that that? That, that also adds to your, and just for the benefit of listeners, um, Ireland has a tragic history of how it's treated unmarried mothers or how it treated um, women who, who are seen to be uh, fallen women. Richard was the, was the term we used to use. And we put people into workhouses and mother and baby homes, and we often took their children from them. And Richard, you are obviously have spoken about that yourself. Do you feel that that also shaped your own politics, or was it something that, like, like, like your Gaza revelation that came to you later on? It, it, like again, it's a good question, Tony. And I mean, I, I, yes, I, I think for for the listeners who don't know that there, there was a sort of um, a dehumanization, really, of. Uh, and this is something Palestinians know because a, a key part of what Israel has done to the Palestinians and the Western powers have done to the Arab world generally is to dehumanize people to justify their subjugation. But the Irish were victims of this. And one f manifestation of that was even when the, uh, the Southern Irish state was established in the 1920s, that there was a... a, a uh, a state church regime that dehumanized uh, children and mothers where there was children born outside marriage. And uh, many of those children were separated from their mothers, uh, forcibly adopted. And I, I was one of those children. And I suppose it, it, do, it does give you a certain perspective about 
the downtrodden and uh, the marginalized and people who are kind of seen as lesser, you know, and I think maybe subconsciously it's, it, it's a thing that where you identify with people who are treated as lesser human beings. And we've had a big fight in this country to kind of establish the legitimacy of everybody as equals, you know, uh, and I would say that was particularly directed also at, at poorer and working class people, you know, that sort of dehumanization. Um, so, yes, I do think it did. I mean, I, w- I want to say, in a way, I've ended up with a happy ending to this story because I was adopted by a very good family. And then my my biological mother later was able to find me. And so now I have two mothers uh, and a bigger family. So I have sort of two families and that's good and that's the way it should be. But many, many families and many people's lives were destroyed by this stuff. And I do think there's a parallel there with the, with the way in which the sort of lives of Palestinians have been wrecked by a system of dehumanization, which is what the apartheid regime is. Um, thank, thank you very much, Richard, for this background. I think it's important, you know, the way we grow up and how it, it shapes and impacts our um, future. I grew up in a refugee camp in Gaza, and I always find myself very sympathetic to other refugees. Um, that's, that's my own experience. Um, two years ago, um, I contributed to a book called A Shared Struggle, which you, uh, which, um, you wrote a, a blurb to uh, on Palestinian and Irish political uh, prisoners, hunger strikers. And uh, one of the uh, prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, lost his life, Khadr uh, Adnan. Um, if we look at the way, you know, the word reacted to, to the plight of Irish hunger strikers and Palestinian hunger strikers, uh, it's totally different. Although if we look at the streets, you know, the streets are with Palestine in Ireland and elsewhere. So my question is, how do we translate this street solidarity into political solidarity to, to pressure governments who seem to be in a totally different world than the streets. Yeah. Well, look, the first thing I, I do want to say, especially at this very, very difficult time for the people of Gaza and the people of Palestine and, you know, the, all that they have suffered and are suffering, I do want to say that despite this, I think we are we are winning the streets we are winning the hearts and minds of millions and billions even you know that uh slogan in our thousands in our millions we are all palestinians i think we can now start to say in our millions in our billions we are all palestinians because i i think the understanding and the identification of people, ordinary people across the world with the Palestinian struggle and with the oppression and suffering that they have uh, they have endured is growing all of the time and is putting huge, huge pressure on the political system. So that gives me great hope. But as you say, there is a, I would say, a relatively thin layer of the political elites and of the corporate elites who have a a uh, vested interest in in protecting the Israeli project, uh, the Zionist apartheid project. They're a small group, but they're a powerful group, and uh, they are going to fight 
to protect that kind of colonial imperialist uh, agenda that they are pursuing and of which the Palestinians are the victims. But I think they are in a weaker position than they've ever been. Um, uh, and even in the United States, you can see that because obviously the main sponsor of Israel, without which it could not survive, it, this regime could not survive without the sponsorship of the United States, the military and financial support. And it's very, very heartening to see the huge scale of mobilization in the United States, including among many Jewish people in the United States, uh, saying Zionism does not represent us. It does not speak for us. So I, I am confident that we are winning. It can't come a moment too soon for the Palestinian people, but I think things are changing. And in Ireland, that, obviously that's going to involve political change, but it, it, at the moment we are a year away from an election in Ireland where the two political parties that have dominated the Irish state and who have uh, failed to act against the apartheid state of Israel, even though the people have demanded again and again they should act against them, those two parties may well be removed from political power in Ireland. And there is a very, very good chance that they will be replaced by parties of the left who will be much more willing to take action against the apartheid state of Israel. Uh, to support, as they should, the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign to isolate uh, Israel the way apartheid South Africa was isolated. So that's where we need to get to. We need political change in the Western world, in the United States and in the European Union, which eventually forces governments to isolate the apartheid colonial settler state of Israel. And if that happens... I just like apartheid South Africa, the ability of that Zionist project to sustain itself, I think, can be uh, undermined. Um, and I hope that can happen soon because there, are, there is a huge scale of, of a movement around the world which is putting intense pressure uh, on Western governments. So we we have to build a movement, but I I think uh, that change is possible, and it's something we can see and hope to see in our lifetimes. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I, I think that we can, but we obviously all need to carry on working as much as we as as we can to get first of all get the ceasefire, and then for me the next essential step is to end the occupation. Um, you know that a ceasefire and and things just returning to how they were on October sixth is not at all satisfactory. In fact, you know the people of Gaza cannot return to what happened on October sixth because you know. Most of Gaza has now been destroyed and the people are in a terrible, terrible situation. But I, I do recall, obviously, um, the, the wonderful movement of Irish Americans who supported the, the Republican movement in Ireland, you know, back throughout the past century, but including in recent decades. And, you know, I'm just hoping that that movement can join with... Yeah. And, and it probably already has joined to a certain extent with the Palestinian American activists, with the Jewish American activists, with the whole broad uh, spectrum of activists in this country who have been calling for a ceasefire. I guess my my concern is that once we get a ceasefire, people will think the the work is finished. Of course, the the struggle for a ceasefire is a huge one, a real ceasefire, not just this humanitarian pause thing. 
But um, how do we get to the end of the occupation? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, yeah, on the ceasefire, I mean, I think we have a very short window to pile the pressure on the United States, on the European Union to uh, in turn put pressure on Israel not to resume the genocidal attack on Gaza. And that's why we we mustn't uh, we we mustn't slow down. We have to escalate the pressure in the coming days because it is horrible and terrifying to think that this could all start again in four or five days' time. And really, you just shudder to think what could happen if this resumes again. So that's the immediate. But you're absolutely right. I, I think part of it, it trying to ensure that it doesn't start again is to say going back to the status quo before October the 7th is no good. It, it is the status quo that led to October the 7th. It is the status quo that has led to the massacre in Gaza. And unless we address that root problem of colonial settler uh, regime, of apartheid, of ethnic cleansing, the ongoing Nakba against the Palestinians, then the violence will will keep coming back. It will continue to get worse. Uh, and that's that's the argument we have to win. I think we are winning it with millions, if not billions, of people. But we have to we have to put that pressure on governments. And if if governments aren't willing to do it, we have to impose it ourselves. And uh, I think here the analogy, and no ana historical analogy is perfect, but to give two analogies, in Ireland, you referred to the hunger strikers in the conflict we had with Britain. When, when I was a teenager, the Irish were still the subject of racist dehumanization in Britain. Right, the, the sort of the racist uh, stereotyping and dehumanization of Irish people was still a fact even when I was a teenager. Today, you don't get that in England anymore. It's very interesting how it's changed. And that has changed because of the struggle in Ireland of people in Ireland and because of... Uh, the movement of solidarity with the Irish, with the Irish people, the work of the Irish diaspora in Britain and the United States, uh, advocating for the Irish cause and challenging all the racist stereotyping that the British sort of colonial mentality had used to justify uh, the oppression of Ireland. So things have changed dramatically. The Irish situation, by the way, is not finished. There is still sectarianism and a colonial presence in the north of Ireland. But things have dramatically changed in favour of the Irish from a very dark place only 30 years ago. So that should give hope to the Palestinian people. Things can change, and they can change quite dramatically. And the other example, obviously, is apartheid South Africa, I mean, which was a horrendous regime. And it seemed it was supported by the United States. It was supported by Britain. It was supported by all the Western powers. But, but the resistance of the black South African people, along with a big international movement of solidarity, of boycott, of divestment, of sanctions, brought that regime down. And uh, uh, a lot of that uh, successful uh, mobilization to achieve that end was 
done despite governments, not because of governments, but despite governments. Uh, so in Ireland, a very important factor in Ireland imposing sanctions on apartheid South Africa was a group of retail workers from a place called Dunn Stores. It's a supermarket chain. These were very low-paid workers. But at a certain moment in the mid-'80s, a group of these workers said, we are not going to handle South African goods anymore. And they were sacked for doing this. And they went on strike for two years. And um, huge numbers of people supported them. And eventually, their action forced the Irish government to impose sanctions on apartheid South Africa. And Nelson Mandela famously said, uh, in the aftermath of the end of apartheid, he said, I knew when I saw white Irish workers going on strike against apartheid that we were going to win. Uh, and it was a very important moment because suddenly the solidarity had become so effective. And so when you look at, say, workers around the country, uh, in some in the United States, some in Belgium and other places, saying we are not going to handle military uh, exports to from Israel or we're not going to touch uh, Israeli goods or we have a bill in the Irish Parliament which is, has been passed, not given effect, but saying there should be no trade with the occupied territories. Um, these kind of things can, can deal a decisive blow against apartheid. Uh, so I think this is the kind of momentum we need to build and I am confident we can, but we need to keep building for that kind of action. Richard, I, I, I promise this is my last question, but it is very much um, a problem with Ireland. We, 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 I agree with you on much of what you've said today, but we also have to accept that in Shannon, there's an airport there sitting there and the US military industrial complex goes through it and their, their, their planes are unchecked as part of the deal. We actually pay them to come. You know, we pay their fees for their, for their landing and takeoff. And we don't know what's happening there. Um, and we've been dishonest kind of in broad about how long this has been going on for, whether it was Afghanistan, whether it was Iraq. We, we don't, we, we know reports of rendition flights that have, been, have used Shannon. You know, we've seen all of this. So, you know, we have, we, while, while Ireland is a neutral country and long may that reign, um, we're also that part of us. There's a little link there that's a chain in the in the military industrial complex, and we need to face up to that. How do we how do we bring more attention to what's gone on in Shannon? Yeah, well, I mean, we brought a, a motion into the Irish Parliament this week, which uh, called for two things. Well, actually, a number of things, but two of the central things were to uh, break all economic, political, and diplomatic ties with the state of Israel, for apartheid and for genocide, uh, and also to end the use of Shannon Airport by the US military uh, because of their support for Israeli genocide and apartheid. Now, we didn't win that vote, but it was quite close. Uh, it was about 50 votes to 83. So, uh, 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 close in the parliament... But I think a majority of Irish people supported us. And that is a change. That's a significant change. I mean, in, in 2003, I was involved in organizing massive demonstrations against the US-UK-led invasion of Iraq. And as part of that campaign, we had big protests 
about the U.S. military using Shannon Airport. Uh, but we didn't stop them. But I think we are very, we are quite close now to overturning the policy of the U.S. military presence in Shannon Airport. That, again, needs political change. But I think uh, we're winning the battle of hearts and minds with public opinion on this issue. Uh, we've, uh, we've more to do, but I'm confident we can win it. And it's interesting, the Irish government have tried to use the Ukrainian crisis as a way of trying to rehabilitate the reputation of NATO and of Western imperialism, and have tried to push us to get more involved with NATO. But the Irish public are having none of it. You know, they're, they are rejecting this. Um, so I, I think uh, it's still a battle to be won, but I do think we are winning the hearts and minds on this issue. And I think that can translate into policy change uh, if we get the political change that I talked about earlier on. Um, so again, it, it is a battle like all of these things, but uh, I, I believe that change can come. But we do need to highlight this. We need to highlight again and again for young people, for example, who may not know about the US military presence in Shannon and how that can be linked to uh, support for the horrific apartheid, genocidal policies of Israel. Thank, thank you, Richard. I um, I want to go back a little bit in the conversation and comment what you and Helena said about the role of the Irish diaspora in the United States. Um, I was in Connecticut, I believe, uh, four years ago, and uh, I saw the only monument for Bobby Sands in the United States in New Haven, Hartford, uh, um, that brought uh, much, uh, you know, light to my heart as a Palestinian, but also it speaks of the uh, importance of the role of the diaspora, the Irish diaspora, both in Ireland and Palestine. Uh, my last question to you is about our friend Zach, who is still, you know, in Gaza. He's stuck in Gaza. He's Irish-Palestinian. His family was able to evacuate, but he, he was... Uh, not able to do that. And, you know, the uh, justification for that is very uh, ridiculous that he did not get the approval by relevant authorities. I don't know what that means, but uh, as a friend and uh, Irish TD, uh, what what can you say and what can you do about it? Well, again, this week I brought up Zach's case in, uh, in the Irish parliament and uh, we we are trying to in the parliament and outside the parliament at the protests. We also bring up Zach, brought up Zach's case, so we are trying to put the pressure on the Irish government to uh, get Zach's name on the list to exit Gaza uh, through Rafa. And it is uh, we've highlighted as part of that. You know, there's so much talk about hostages being taken, uh, and we are saying, yeah, who are the hostages here? Israel is in effect holding an Irish citizen and other Irish citizens hostage. Uh, and it's an outrage. And our government should be outraged at this, uh, that Irish citizens are being held uh, hostage by Israel, as, of course, our 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza are being held hostage uh, for 16 years. And I so we we, we are putting all the pressure we can to say, bring Zach back. 
Um, and uh, we've been saying that at the protests, and I hope that will yield results. It's an important test for our government uh, that they would fight for Zach. Uh, he, he's a friend. He's a comrade. I've been on many, many protests with Zach over many years. Uh, so there's a there's a big campaign to get Zach back. Um, and uh, I hope we can put enough pressure on the Irish government to ensure that that, that happens. Wow. This has been such a, a powerful conversation. Um, our guest today here at the uh, Palcast has been the Irish parliamentarian Richard Boyd Barrett. And really, it's been um, wonderful to have you with us, Richard. Thank you so much. Um, the Palcast is a podcast on the intersection of Palestinian politics and world affairs with our host, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal, our friend Tony Groves of Tortoise Shack Media, and today's powerful guest, the Irish parliamentarian, Richard Boyd Barrett. The Palcast is a collaboration of Just World Educational and Tortoise Shack Media, and we have a new sp- sponsor to announce today, which is the Hashim Sani Center at the University of Malaya. Our tagline here at the Palcast is one world, one struggle, and we're trying to embody that in all of our work. Welcome to the Hashim Sani Center. We urge everyone who's listening to this to follow the Palcast on Apple or Spotify so you can catch each new episode as soon as it drops. And please continue posting great reviews for us on those platforms. Tell all your friends and networks about the Palcast too so they can start listening. On behalf of Just World Educational, I want to thank Palcast's great host, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal. I want to thank Tony Groves of Tortoise Shack Media and today's fabulous guest, Richard Boyd Barrett. I just want to say thanks very much to to you, Helena, and to Yusuf uh, and to Tony. And please, Yusuf, uh, send my very, very best regards to everybody over there and let them know that uh you have the majority of people in this country standing with you uh in Gaza in Palestine uh and uh you c- you can rely that we will continue to build a movement in solidarity until Palestine is free uh, and this terrible injustice is ended thank you richard indeed it's a shared struggle of the palestinian and irish people thank it you. is indeed Thanks, folks. Um, I, I just uh, want to say thank you to Richard because I, I know he was under pressure to fit us in this week. So, so I really appreciate it. And I'm again, I don't want to keep going on, but it's great to work with you guys because I'm completely out of my depth on this. I am, as Richard will tell you, uh, Billy come lately. You know, that's it. <laughs> but, but, but thanks so much, guys, and and it's credit to you. We'll be what well, we've we've another pod coming next week, and we'll be back in your feed. We're going to discuss, I believe, Hel- Helena. We're going to discuss the difference between a humanitarian pause and a ceasefire and why that really matters to people so there will be there will be more coming your way so make sure you hit subscribe and and share the podcast thank you so much for listening i really appreciate it